Good morning as we come back together. We are looking at Romans chapter 7, and we are trying to keep the entire book of Romans together, uh, reminding ourselves that these are, are not individual chapters, but that the whole book is about one thing. And it is that passion of Paul's to keep the church together, to express who we are in Christ that has been uh, really explained to me in ever greater degree by a recent book that I read about the life of Paul. And just the way in which the author took time to unpack some of the periods that are actually quite lengthy in Paul's life, but because they're not about the missionary journeys, uh, are hardly mentioned by Luke. And one of those is his better part of 10 years home back in Tarsus after he's come to faith, after he spent time in Arabia, probably at that point uh, near Mount Sinai, because that's the way the Romans described the lower region there uh, near the, the Sinai Peninsula as Arabia. And so he'd spent some time near Mount Sinai reflecting on the giving of the law. He goes to Tarsus, he goes home, and he's not exactly sure what he's going to do uh, next. And what he appears to be doing, though, is drinking richly and deeply of the Word of God and the amazing implications of what he saw and experienced and heard from Jesus when he met him on the road to Damascus. And I can only imagine the joy and the excitement because my brain kind of works in this uh, way in which making connections between things and seeing patterns is something I really enjoy doing. And the way Paul begins to unpack the beauty and the richness of what God was saying in the Old Testament in word and in deed and how Jesus then transforms, fulfills, and propels us forward into the kingdom of God, must have been a delight and a joy. And there are places in Romans where Paul seems so excited that he jams so much into so few words that on a Sunday where we are working to be concise, the notion of starting Romans 7 in a 15-minute homily just seems, well, a little tight. But we'll see what the Lord does we know He always does something when we read His Word, so let's put the text in front of us first. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on the person only as long as they live. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is alive. But if her husband dies, he is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to, an, uh, belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive." 
so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the richness of revelation that you gave us through your Son and how your Spirit has empowered the Apostle Paul to help us see how free we are in you and how generous you have been in your love and your mercy. And we pray that we continue to reflect and revel in your mercy and your grace this morning and in all seasons. Whatever is said that is not useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. We have tried diligently to try uh, to keep Romans as a whole. Even though we have these bite-sized pieces in sermons, we are constantly trying to remind ourselves that what we, at least I'm trying to remind myself, that we have a book that is a whole. And we started in Romans 16 at the very beginning so many months ago because Romans 16 is what Paul is aiming for. The reason he wrote the book is that all of these friends and people that he ministers to, he desires that they would have a unified church. And because they are both Romans and Jewish folks, there are issues and there are challenges in background and theology and philosophy and religion. And Paul has been trying to both recognize those differences and express the unified human condition. And so what we saw in those early chapters of Romans is that everyone struggles with and seeks to deny the reality of who God is. And there are certain ways in which Jewish folks, having been given the law and given circumcision, had certain ways in which their own abandonment of God's truth had particular implications or revelation of those truths because of the way in which they were in relationship with God through his law. And so in many ways, Romans goes back and forth between the two groups and statements that unify both groups, both in faith being the only way, as well as the human condition and God's work in their lives. This passage, we are moving from an emphasis on the general Gentiles' challenges in Romans 6 back to specific conversations about the challenges that Jewish folks have as they come in contact with Jesus and the transformation that happens this side of the resurrection. There are two major sections in our text today. Verses 1 through 3 uses the illustration of marriage in one way, and verses 4 through 6 slightly differently. It is a different view of life and death and what happens to us in Christ. And the challenge would be if we inadvertently, because there's only six verses, read this as if it was all one thought, as opposed to two thoughts interrelated, but using different analogies or illustrations. The first section we're just going to call the law passes away. The law passes away. So what he says is this, brothers, that is 
identifying himself with his kinsmen, the Jewish folks in the uh, Roman church. And he says, look, the law was like a spouse. Now, this does not mean that the spouse was a bad spouse. There's nothing here in the text that indicates that we should all wish the first spouse died or that he was abusive or that it was somehow a bad marriage. It certainly wasn't that with the law. The law was given by God. There's no problem with the law. The problem was with us. The problem was with Israel. The problem was sin. The problem was not the law. But the law, being in relationship with Israel, providing an opportunity to know God, had a limited time frame. It was not the fullness of God's desire for his people. God's desire for his people was all of the wonderful pictures of the tabernacle and the temple to dwell with his people, to be in and amongst them and to be in relationship and fellowship. And it's always just not quite there for Israel. It's always a distance. There's always a barrier, not to mention all of the barriers in the temple itself, which clearly indicated that there was not an ease of relationship with God. You just couldn't get that close to him. And the law was the only way to maintain any relationship. But Paul is saying here that the law is died. When Israel used to go after other gods, that was adultery. When they abandoned the law of God and started following the law of human beings, the law of sin, the law of fill-in-the-blank, capitalism, uh, socialism, um, authoritarianism, anarchy, whatever the old names were for those current reincarnations of humans just wanting to be humans and have their way. And every time Israel followed after those things, they inevitably worshipped Baals and Asher poles and gods from Syria and gods from Egypt and from all over the known world. And God regularly describes that as adultery, as not being faithful. And you can imagine that as Paul begins to push against the law and say the law is dead, and that Jesus is now what we were all looking forward to. The Messiah is the fulfillment of the law and the transition from where we were in the law to where we are now, that some Jewish folks are going to feel a little bit defensive. Well, now hold on. I thought we were supposed to be loyal to the law. God gave the law through Moses. We are people of the covenant. How can you ask us to be unfaithful? The whole reason we kept getting in trouble is we were unfaithful to the law. And so it's not surprising that Paul needs an analogy, an illustration to help them understand that there is a transition in God from a relationship through the law to a relationship in Christ. The law has passed away. And some of us may grieve at that loss. It helped define who we were. Those practices, those actions, the way we interacted with the defined. Some of us will grieve over the loss of that law. Paul understands that. He was a Jew among Jews. But our old spouse has passed away. 
And so being faithful to Jesus, trusting in the Messiah is not unfaithfulness to our old spouse, the law. We are free to marry again. This can pop up in our lives in lots of different ways. We can regularly become attached to historical understandings of the church, cultures within the church. It's always a calling of God's people to hear afresh that we died to the law, whatever those laws may be that creep up, that begin to define who we are as Christians outside of who Christ is. What are those things that you identify yourself as or with that may have overlap with the gospel? Clearly, the law is not dead in the sense that the moral character of God has changed or that being in Christ, we don't aspire and desire and know that in Christ we will have greater and greater faithfulness and generosity and love and not coveting of other things. And all of those are hopes and expectations in Christ. The law wasn't destroyed. The moral character of God has not vanished. And yet I define myself now not in my ability to adhere to the moral or the ceremonial law, but I define myself as who I am in Christ. And anything else that upsets me or angers me or causes me to break faith with other believers, Paul is going to push hard against identifying myself as anything other than one in Christ. So the law has passed away, and we are free to marry again. And of course, that great groom is Christ himself. And we know, therefore, that the hope and future of humanity was never in the law and never in Adam, but in the second Adam that we learned about in chapter 5, who was greater than the first Adam and whose actions in line with the character of God brought life to all. And so verse 4 and 6, 4 through 6, move us from it's okay to be married to Jesus. It's okay to have your loyalty with Jesus rather than the law. This transition has happened, my fellow Jews. It has happened to us, and we have moved from one to the other. And likewise, now this is a different conversation and a different illustration. We're not still talking about the death of the law, the passing away of the law, and the new life in Christ. Now we're talking about our own death, right? And this is where it can get confusing because if we just read these two sections together and think, well, now hold on a second, the married spouse died, but now I'm dying. No, 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 deep breath, there is a different thought here. We have concluded one thought with Genesis. Any chance to get to Genesis? Uh, With verses 1 through 3. Now we talk about another implication of Jesus, this new groom. And so what we find is that, my brothers, you also have died. You've died to the law through the body of Christ. And so not only has the law passed away, 
so that we can now be loyal to Jesus. But in Jesus, the power of the law to condemn us has also been taken away. This isn't about covenant faithfulness. This is now about the judgment of the law, which was a right judgment. We know it was a right judgment because we read the first three chapters of Romans and the human condition. And we've also learned in chapter 5 and chapter 6 that we died with Christ, that the old has passed away and we were reborn in Christ. And baptism is a means by which that death and resurrection, we are identified with Christ. And so what we know here is that we died, the body, uh, we died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. And so not only did the law have to pass away as the primary covenantal interaction between us and God, but we needed to die so that we could be ready for a new life with a perfect groom. And we are then identified with Christ in his death and resurrection. In order, as new beings, we can bear fruit. And we talked about this and the beauty of Galatians. We can bear fruit that creates and shares life. That nurtures the other rather than being poisonous. Than being death itself. Unless we die in Christ we continue to produce that bad fruit. And so Paul addresses then in these short six verses two ways in which we interact with the law, two ways in which Jewish folks interacted with the law, and ways in which as Christians, as we now face 2,000 years after the ascension, this reality as we continue to struggle with our own relationship with God. But what makes us any different? We can say these things. We can say, well, you know, we passed the laws passed away, and we don't have to be religiously uh, zealot for uh, certain hand washing exercises or in other ways in which we sit down or stand up or what have you. We don't have to be zealous for all those things because we know now that the law is not the way we interact. We understand that they were a good way to learn about God, but now we know. And uh, we have a relationship with Jesus. Is that really enough? No. This would all be profoundly heavy and weighty and frustrating and, quite frankly, bringing death. If it weren't for the fact that this is where Paul brings in yet again the difference that the Spirit brings. We can't completely understand, and we know that the Holy Spirit was present in the Old Testament, and a few people have interaction with Him. But the words of Jesus and the words of the New Testament tell us something happened at Pentecost that was radically different. The resurrection of Jesus allowed for a relationship through and with the Holy Spirit that makes John the Baptist the least in the kingdom of heaven. That is to say that with all of his spiritual power, because of the Holy Spirit, Had John lived to Pentecost, he would have experienced a transformation that would have made him feel like the intimacy he knew with God was a foretaste of what he now knew post-Pentecost. 
It wasn't that he didn't have anything, but something's different. And words fail to completely unpack how marvelous and profoundly earth-shattering, and in fact, in a good sense, earth-shattering, because it breaks the power of sin and death, and the Spirit dwelling in us because of the work of Christ allows us to bear fruit. It is, Paul says in verse 6, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not of the old way of the written code. It is the Spirit. It is the gift of the Spirit. And as a Presbyterian, I'm not sure I understand what on earth that means. I know that it means that the third person of the Trinity dwells in me. But to meditate and to rest and to delight in and to know that it is not the written code, but the Spirit working in and through me that brings life. And of course, that's never divorced from the revealed Word of God. It's never divorced from the written Word of God. And yet the Spirit dwelling in me is the protection from the Word of God becoming a written code, which I begin to try and follow like my brothers and sisters before Jesus followed the Mosaic law, I can turn even Paul into the law. And Paul knows it. And so he reaffirms, and he's going to write Romans 8 for us, which is going to unpack the power of the Holy Spirit to protect us from turning even the Gospels into written code. It is the Spirit. It is that conscious dependence upon the direction of the Holy Spirit. My encouragement is not to focus on the Holy Spirit as if it is a third deity, but really and truly as Paul does to praise this year in your reading of Scripture and in the years to come, the presence of the Spirit and the Spirit's life-giving power through the Word, and through the words of your brothers and sisters. It is in that community and in that fellowship. Paul is writing this book so that not so that people can go off and study the Bible by themselves. He is writing this book desperately trying to keep the Roman church together because he knows if you put a Jew and a Roman in the room filled with the Holy Spirit, you get the gospel spoken in more rich and deep Ways than if the Jewish folks are over there and the Roman folks are over there and they read their Bibles and there's no union by the Spirit. It's that life of the Spirit using you to talk to me and me to talk to you and Paul to speak to us even 2,000 years later by the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. Thank you. Thank you that we are with you, that we can be loyal to you alone, and that in being loyal to you, we can live out your character by the Spirit. May you be the center of all of it. In Christ's name, amen.